I wonder if there's a recipe for discipleship. Can I just add a cup of this and sprinkle a dash of that and voila, I'm a disciple. What does it look like? Am I even doing it right? Am I doing what's required? That's today on the podcast. It's Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for listening in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this podcast blesses you and we hope that you feel free to share it with someone that you know so that they'll feel blessed too. We've been saying this entire sermon series that faith without action is like a screen door on a submarine. Pretty useless. You can learn a great deal about the Bible academically, but the true learning comes from doing faith in action. This week, Pastor Jason finishes up this sermon series in the book of James, and guess what? There's one secret ingredient to discipleship that we haven't talked about yet, but it isn't that secret. According to the book of James, discipleship in action starts with not what we do, but what we give up. He calls it surrender, and that is a hard thing to do. Let's check it out right now. This is our uh, last in our installment of this sermon series, like a screen door on a submarine. And it comes uh, from an old Christian music song that talked about faith without action uh, is ridiculous. It's as useless as a screen door on a submarine. So we've been looking through the book of James, which I love the book of James. I kind of love hate it because it's so direct. I love that it's direct, but it's also like, ooh, yeah, that one hurt. (laughs) And the whole premise of what we've been talking about, and by the way, if you've missed any in this series, you can catch it online. Uh, we have a podcast. Just go to iTunes or wherever you find pod- wherever you Android people find podcasts. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> However you do it, we're on there, Tower Hill Church podcast. You get caught up in all the messages in the series. Uh, so discipleship we've been talking about is not just about head knowledge. And that's where sometimes we get confused as to what it means to be a good disciple. We think, well, it means I have to know more scripture. I have to go to Bible study. I have to learn more. It's all about kind of this academic pursuit of God. Now, that's all well and good, but that's not the same thing as being a disciple. Even if you just think about who the first disciples were, they were the ones who education waved bye-bye to, Right? They're the ones who did not make it to the second round of education. They became fishermen. They learned a trade. They did things to go further their career. And only the best of the best in that culture got to continue with school. So they weren't. It wasn't about head knowledge completely. It's a little about head knowledge. But I think discipleship is much more like an apprenticeship. It's 20% school, 80% on the job training. Now whenever you do the... This, uh, you know, education, uh, on-the-job training. Sometimes, you know, it's so funny because if I'm just in the classroom and somebody theoretically tells me how to uh, install a new electrical panel, electrical service in a house, and I study it and I learn how all the wires go together and fit into all the breakers from experience. So my stepdad was an electrician, and I used to have to work for him, which he never paid me, but... But I watched him do a million of these service panels. I have no idea how to do it still. I watched him do it over and over and over again. So if it's just head knowledge, you're just like, okay, do you completely understand how to do this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, here you go. Do it. Uh, wait. So I got to, maybe I really don't understand. 
I feel like this is true in our lives, but we have so much pride, we don't want to admit that we need help. It's like that Saturday Night Live skit with Jimmy Fallon, the computer guy at your work. Anybody remember that? He's like, he's the computer guy, and he's like, I'm having a problem with my computer. Did you do X, Y, L, delete, X, double, no, I didn't, I don't know what to do, move. And he goes in and he, he fixes it. I feel like, so, for so much of us, we're, we got too much pride just to even admit that we need help. And this is true in our lives. It's true when it comes to discipleship. And I think if you had to boil down discipleship, following Jesus, into its most basic element, it would be one word. Surrender. Surrender is at the heart of the Christian life. It's waving the white flag and saying, I don't have it all figured out. I am not my own savior. I do not have the power to live as God would have me to live on my own. just don't have it. That's what we're talking about today. About surrender. Because James challenges us with he kind of identifies one of the biggest problems standing in our way is our own selfish ambition. Let's go into James now. James chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now remember, James is um, jumping in to a point where there's an issue going on in a church. There's an issue going on with the believers. And so he's specifically addressing that issue. That's why a lot of these letters we forget. They were written to a very specific issue going on. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? First of all, let's just say, I love that this was happening even back then. Because in church, I hate to break it to you, sometimes fights and quarrels break out. You might be surprised to hear that. In fact, there are some who they go to church and then like somebody's arguing about something. You're like, ah, church. We don't do that in church. Well, we shouldn't. But I guess wherever humans are, fights and quarrels happen. And they're evening, even happening back in the very first church. And that's something like, and we say it all the time here. The only difference between us inside the building and those outside the building is we know we need help. We have the same issues, the same exact issues. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, now that hasn't happened here yet with our, it's good, with our arguments. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. That's a big statement there. But as if then to anticipate their very next question. Like I bet then what they're going to say is, well, I asked God for $100,000. I didn't get it. I asked God to win the $1.6 billion. Mega million. What, what gives, God? Then James follows up in perfect timing. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
I think it's important to note that he's talking about a very specific thing here. He's talking about the kind of jealousy that happens between people, yes, even in the life of the church. You want something somebody else has, and your own desires are telling you you want it. And so then maybe you ask God for it, but you want it because that person has it. I'm sure that never happens where we live in our area, ever. We never compare ourselves to others. It's really, it's a utopia, really. Yeah, we're constantly comparing. And and even if you're not, your kids are and your grandkids are. How come we can't go on that expensive trip? Because we're going to Ohio, okay? (laughs) That's what we can afford. (laughs) How come we don't have a big house? Because we don't. Be grateful. It's about what happens when we compare what we have. Because once you start comparing, you stop appreciating. You, you completely stop appreciating what you have because it's not good enough. And then you're never satisfied, ever. Somebody always has more. Always has something that you want. Fights and quarrels arise from selfish motives. I love this illustration from Francis Chan, who's a pastor Uh, This is from his book, Crazy Love. He's got this great illustration that's one of my favorites that he uses. He says, it's kind of like, you know, our selfish motives are kind of like, uh, we're, like, like, pretend you're an actor and you get a part in a movie. And you're all excited. You invite your friends and family. You got to go see this movie. Got to go see it. I'm in it. I have a part. And sure enough, they get to the theater and they start the movie. And they're like, I don't know. I don't see Jason in this movie. Is he in this? He said he was in this movie. I, I haven't seen him yet. Get like, you know, nine-tenths of the way through it. And then like you see the side of my head as I'm crossing the screen. And I'm like, I think that was, I think that was Jason. Was that it? The rest of the movie goes on. That's it. That's the only time you ever see me in the movie. And, and you call me or you text me right away. You're like, dude, I watched this two-and-a-half-hour movie. Right? Like Star Wars 19. And I thought you said you were in it. I was, dude. Didn't you see me? You saw the side of my head. See, the truth is, for us who are in the movie, we think the movie's about us. But in our lives, in our real lives, we're not the heroes of this story. It's God's movie. It's about him. It's about what he's done. How he's created all of us. And when we messed up, He's been chasing us down to heal us, to make us right again. We have this little bitty part. (laughs) Some of us might have speaking parts, but all of us have a part that's really just a blip. And I think sometimes we just get so fixated on our story, we're the heroes of our own story, that we approach things naturally from a selfish and self-centered motivation. It's about me. And that's one of the things that gets in our way. Because that's our default, is selfishness. James says that we don't receive, or they don't receive, because of these motives. That It's the selfish motives that prevents you from receiving what God wants to give you. You're probably not even asking for the right things. The things that God wants to give you. Now this is really an important distinction. 
um, is, this isn't a blanket statement to talk about everything that we might pray for. That's important, because you could take this passage, pull it out of context, and say, you pray for things, you don't get them because you have bad motives. And then you're like, yeah, well, you know, I prayed for my mother who was terminally ill, and she didn't survive. I had bad motives? No. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking very specifically about stuff, about comparing, about the jealousy that comes from those things. And motives matter. Just like if your kid comes to you and says, uh, Dad, Mom, I want 10 bucks. I mean, I, usually I'm not just like, oh, okay, kids, come here. You know, here's tens for everybody. No, I ask, what do you need 10 bucks for? Yeah, no problem. What do you need 10 bucks for? Because the motives matter. I want 10 bucks because I want to go get a sandwich. I want 10 bucks because I want to buy cigarettes. Like, the motives matter to me. What kind of a good father would give us something that he knows will kill us? That's why we don't receive. We ask for things that, whether we know it or not, are going to kill us or drive us further away from him. So when we approach God with our desires, we must first reset our hearts. Jesus did this all the time. You catch it in his, in his prayer life. He's dropping these clues when he says things like, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but thy will. That's Jesus resetting his heart. And if he needs to make sure his heart's in the right place, how much more do we need to make sure? When I say that, that might sound um, surprising. I just realized that. Like, wait, Jesus had to reset his heart? Well, he was human. He didn't sin. But he was faced with temptation. He was faced with making sure that his heart was right. I mean, just read the story of him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wanted to let go. He wanted that cup to pass from him. That's what he wanted. But then he said, but what he really wanted was what the Father wanted. And he would sacrifice that. He would sacrifice what he wanted if it meant that the Father got what he wanted. So yeah, Jesus had to make sure his heart was right. So here's the remedy, verse 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Oh man, we hate that word. Submit. Is there an easier way to say it, man? Submit. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Talk about a promise. That's the kind of one you want to highlight that thing and read it every day. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wow. Now this next section, he talks about repentance. It's going to sound really harsh and full of sorrow. It's because uh, repentance in that culture was about you, you wailed, you mourned, you ashes and sackcloth. I mean, it was you changed what you wore, you changed how you behaved to show that you were serious about sin, that you were serious, that you didn't want to be that anymore. So he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's the payoff that God gives us. If you humble yourselves, now listen, what's the alternative? If I don't humble myself, then my life is lived just trying to lift myself up. Because that's what it's about. I'm the hero. It's my story. It's my movie. It's about me lifting myself up. Which in the end is not going to make me as full of joy and fulfillment and peace and love as if God lifts me up. Because God's going to lift me up in the way that's going to prosper me and flourish me. Not kill me. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So I think the first thing to recognize in this passage is that humility is an activity. Look at all the action words. Look at all the verbs that we are given from James. Humility isn't just something we think in our head. It's something we do. Humility, oh yeah, 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 I understand that. I understand that completely. Ah, You don't understand it unless you can do it. Humility is submit yourselves, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to joy, or excuse me, change your laughter, and humble yourselves. Humility is an activity. But that's, I mean, that makes logical sense though, right? Oh yeah, I'm totally humble. Or like, you know, I did this really cool thing. But, you know, all to God's glory. But I did this really like. (laughs) There's people who say stuff like that. At least they're trying. At least they're throwing God in there, you know. It's all about God. But let me tell you about me just for a sec. I think the second thing about humility is that it is both vertical and horizontal. What causes fights among you, he asks? Submit to God. That almost seems like it doesn't make sense. But those things go together, and they always do when it comes to Jesus. Jesus, when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Answers with two responses. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. In other words, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor truly without loving God. They go together. I love the fact that the cross has a vertical and a horizontal component to it. The place where heaven meets earth. The place where humanity is met by God from the inside out. Our humility is how we treat one another. Lifting each other up. As much as as it's about humbling ourselves before God and submitting to what he wants. And then the third thing to notice is that God lifts up the humble. It's the only place that I could think of where it says that God lifts people up as a result. God responds to humility. Why? Because I think humility is about surrender. It's about saying not what I want, but what you want. I want to show this in the life of Jesus. If we go to Philippians chapter 2, Paul explains to us how this relates Because of what God did in Jesus Christ. He says this, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, 
in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ultimate display of humility. That the God of the universe would submit to death, even death on a cross at human hands. Therefore, God exalted him. What's that mean? Lifted him up to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge, I like the translation, says confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We need to start living a lifted up life. Not because we want to be so great, but because we know the one who is so great. Who we trust with everything in our lives. Who we trust with everything we are. And everywhere that we hope to go. That he would lift us up. And that we would flourish. We would become those people that he created us to be. Those people that he had in mind when he made us. When he formed us. So how do we do it? Well, I think humble people and living a life of humility. First of all, be careful if you start praying for humility. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. You hear that expression, be careful what you pray for? I'm telling you, you will be humbled. (laughs) But all kidding aside, how do we do that? How do we acknowledge and move forward with more humility. I think it's a, a mindset of life. I think there are two ways you could do it. There's two different kinds of people. And you'll know exactly when I say it. The first person, their life is all about what the world owes them. It's all about what the world owes them. They are a perpetual victim. And every accomplishment they have is never enough because they're owed more. And in the end, they are never satisfied, never fulfilled, rarely have joy. Then you have the kind of person who says, this is all a gift. This is all bonus time. This is all more than I deserve. And as a result, I owe the world. I owe back from what God has blessed me with. And you know, humble people who are like that, and you know some people who are like that, they tend to be the ones who have more joy in their lives, more loving relationships. They're probably everybody's friend. They are being lifted up by God. And as a result, their lives, they're living lifted up lives. And you can too. How? Surrender. It's all about waving the white flag. 
Now today, as we close our prayer time, I want you to consider this. That this week, maybe you pick one area of your life where you need to wave the white flag to God. It could be very, very specific. It could be very general. What's one area? It could be a relationship. It could be a situation. It could be a habit. Where's one area where you can wave the white flag to God? And I want to encourage you, let this be the week that you do. What do you have to lose? Oh, I know what you have to lose. Your lack of fulfillment. Your frustration. Your anger. Your sense that you're owed. Faith without action doesn't make any sense. Neither does humility. It's without actually doing it. It's like a screen door on a submarine. 